Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer-perceived value and all of the things it takes to grow, develop, sell, and price to customer-perceived value. Today, I have Bradley Hartman. Bradley came from the building industry. He's, he's got wood slivers in his veins. Uh, he's, been, he's, been a, uh, he's been in the building industry forever. Uh, working his way up through one of the biggest home builders and being a head of purchasing for Pulte Homes, buying uh, lumber and related commodities. And now he helps sellers in that building materials industry become more successful. His, his company is Behind Your Back Sales. One of his books is Behind Your Back, what, the, what uh, purchasing folks say when you walk out the door. And uh, Bradley, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I've got a highlighted dog-eared copy of Radical Value here as well. So um, it's a joy to be on it. I'm a longtime listener. Uh, well, I guess since you launched it anyway. And um, a mutual friend, Tim Rethlake, put us in touch and said, hey, I think you guys are going to get along famously. And uh, I've got already a ton of value from you. So thank you and thrilled to be here. Yeah, no, I've, uh, you know, ever since uh, interviewing Tim, and I think he actually introduced me months before that podcast episode. And so I've been itching for um, my time with Bradley Hartman. And so the anticipation has just been maddening. So uh, this, is, <laughs> this is really a pleasure. So what do salespeople not get about purchasing? Yeah, well, I think it's a great place to start. We'll, we'll jump right into the, the meat of, of the meal, if you will. I think what I will tell you will not be a surprise to anyone, but we're going to go into a little bit. But first and foremost, purchasing managers lie, right? And I think that in and of itself is probably not an amazing insight, but I think why we do it and why we have done it. Now that I'm, the, I'm helping folks on the other side of the desk, I'm helping them walk through to understand that to avoid these. But I think it's really two part is number one is that, um, it's to their advantage. There's some information asymmetry, right? They know all the prices. They know all the details. Um, we can adjust the deadlines to give us more of an advantage there. However, I think more often than not, specifically around the phrase, your price is too high. When we hear that, that's a lie because again, kind of tying into that information asymmetry, it allows me in a very simple, direct way that you will embrace that allows me to move on with my life and allows you to move on with your life by simply saying, hey, your price is too high. So when we hear your price is too high, I would say 80% of the time, know that that is probably not a factual statement. You did not provide enough value. The relationship isn't strong enough. There are other overriding factors that result in you not getting that business. But too often, I think salespeople wanna to cling to that because it's an easy solution as opposed to saying, I didn't deliver enough value. Uh, I'm, you know, we weren't candid enough, like all these other reasons that you talk about in your book, those get really covered up in a really easy way with a simple statement from a purchasing manager that says your price is too high. 
Yeah, I want to I want to stop that, right? Yeah. If the purchasing manager took the time out of their far too busy day to tell you your price is too high, yeah. That's already a signal that they want to talk about why your price is what it is. It's it's really hard for me to tell salespeople that I want you to listen selectively, but in this case, I want you to hear the words your value is too low. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And if you respond as if those, those words translated from your price is too high and they landed as your value is too low, you're going to respond a lot better. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I love that. And uh, we'll often talk with our clients and we'll say, well, have you ever heard of this mindset of a purchasing manager, a business owner who's making a buying decision? Say we put out a, uh, an RFP, we get five bids, one's crazy low, one's crazy high, we throw those out, and then we deal with the three in the middle. They're like, yeah, no, that's, we, we've heard that before. I said, okay, if true, then why are we bending over backwards and trying to be the low person because they said you're 2% high, right? If we wanna be a consultative seller, well, let's do that. And you're gonna have to pay for a certain portion of insights and ideas. And, and that's where I always start. Um, when I launched the company and a lot of folks were saying, you know, we don't have a lot of folks that were buying materials and labor, millions of dollars of that for a portion of the country and then leave and are able to kind of tell us what happened behind those doors. And I said, it's the insight to the obvious. We both want the same things. I want to work with experts who have ideas and insights who can help me make, find and save money and make me look smart. Right. And I said, if we break that down and we view that as a checklist, you will be on your path to providing more value. Yeah, I, I love that, Bradley. And I, in my experience, I've met purchasing people of all different, in all different industries, but all different experience levels. Mm-hmm. And this is a, maybe a little bit of an overgeneralization, but they are all chartered to buy the best value, not the lowest price, but the best value. And the less seasoned the, sale, the uh, purchasing professional, the less likely they are to know what value is. They, they know they want to buy it, but they don't know what it is. They haven't really been trained to measure it, but their ears are open. Their minds are open. You kind of have to walk them through and you have to prove it using some of their own people that they didn't let you talk to. Yeah, completely agree. And this is, uh, I'm, I'm flipping open to a page right here. Um, but you talk about in like the first 30 page, uh, you talk about dollarization, right? And you said, if the decision at hand doesn't call for them to analyze your differentiator or outcomes in any detail, ultimately in concrete dollarized terms, they won't. And I think you're hitting on something really important is that you really have to do your homework online and off, talk to people to try to understand number one, what this individual wants, because if they're in purchasing, the, uh, the reality is they're buying. That's their job. They will buy from someone. Now, why they buy from you or someone else, that really gets into how they view it, how sophisticated they are. But I think the biggest failure that I saw in the purchasing side on that side of the desk was the inability for a lot of sales folks to come in and tell me a simple story, grab a marker, go to the whiteboard and say, let's do some super simple math. Let's talk about how we're better or different. And let me see if this resonates with you. And to the point that I would give them a marker and I'd say, hey, go to the whiteboard, show me the math, walk me through this innovative product you have. You know, we don't always buy on price. That's a fact. I'll tell you that right now. So that's good for you. Walk me through the math here. That's a really compelling story that'll get me excited and that 
will travel easily. And so many salespeople were unable to do that. So many times, you know, in, in my business, a sales leader or marketing will give this big, huge, multi-page ROI calculator that's, um, you know, multiple pages of, in Excel. And you ask the customer some questions and you fill that ROI calculator out. And then you've actually installed the sale. And now you've engaged in this side battle called the battle of the assumptions, where you're opening up every cell in that Excel spreadsheet and tell me about the assumptions. So that complicated ROI calculator isn't necessarily the answer. If you have some simple math, and this is the math that we did with Tim on his podcast. Before that fireplace goes in, there's some framing and some heat shielding. And afterwards, there's some insulation and some uh, drywall and some, so that it fits into a process. Mm -hmm. And if that fireplace arrives on the building site one day late, there's this cascading failure mechanism that the building supervisor has. Right now, when crews are really hard to get, you got to pay them. Otherwise, you're going to lose them to another builder and you'll never get them back. So the cost of a one day late is having to pay all my crews for an extra day, having to readjust my schedule. And it's not just the, the one or two days late, because, but it, it just snowballs into a bigger and bigger cost. So that one day late is worth more than the cost of the fireplace. And that's math that you can do on your yeah. whiteboard and you don't need pages and pages of, of Excel to prove it. Yeah. And I think, uh, thinking back to a story on, uh, so I was in the field, uh, started off building homes, so built over a thousand homes in the field, kind of managing all the talented folks that would really do what you just described there. And then I went into the office and I was buying for multiple territories. And in one of the States I was buying a drywall supplier, and a drywall installer came and they said, hey, I know you're new here. Wanted to give you a little bit of background on what's happened in this market. I said, great. Uh, they seemed, uh, they did their homework. They were smart. And they said, we're looking at your schedule. You're giving us a couple days for delivery. Then you give us a couple days, uh, and almost up to five days for the install. And then you have an extra day for us to scrap to kind of get rid of everything. The net, I think it was like seven or eight days in the drywall. He says, we've talked about this and not sure exactly what you consider your carrying cost is. Every day we do not close that house. It costs a roundabout numbers was 200, 250 bucks. He said, you know what? If we collaborate together and we can get these communities, we can remove three of those days in your schedule. So it's fair to say that we could be able to just move those up. We can just remove $750 right off the bat and blah, blah, you know, but I think that is a higher level thinking. And for some purchasing folks, they might really not really care about purchase or the, uh, the carrying costs because they're not familiar with that sort of the, the finance or uh, the fundamentals of the business. But if you are, they were zeroing in on that and we took them up in the offer, we reduced the schedule and they really, uh, I think over the course of the year, they ended up getting 100% of that market. But again, it was the supplier, it was an installer working together, thinking differently. And that value was something that we generally saw uh, way too often. Great story. You knew you had to think bigger picture, but that wasn't a point of emphasis in your thinking. But when somebody came to you and guided you through it, it's pretty straightforward. And now those three days are worth that $750. Yeah. And it gave for me, and I was a you know, young, ambitious, I wanted to make my mark. It allowed me to say, you know, go to our CFO and say, you know what I was thinking about? 
pulled together a supplier and a drywall installer and I asked them if they could do this. And not only can they reduce the, you know, the cost of the actual labor and the material, the drywall, the gypsum itself. However, we can also take three days out of the schedule. Here's the rough math. They allowed me to go in, basically pawn off their idea and make me look like the hero. So all the way across the board, you think I'm going to work, want to work more with them? Uh, yeah, hell yeah, I do. And I yeah. want to find more people like this. Yeah. When you do that with a purchasing person, what is the difference in your commission when you give that purchasing person the credit for having the idea? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's where I was like, hey, these guys are making it easy for not only me to do my job better. And this is kind of that idea we're always trying to work with our folks on is, remember, these are human beings. They're not going to be rational. They're going to make decisions based on emotion. They're going to be outside pressures. So really think of who they are personally and professionally and really try to understand not only what are the business outcomes they want, but what are the personal outcomes? And for me, it was, I want to get promoted. And I think I can do that by, you know, X, Y, and Z. Well, uh, make that happen. Cause we had guys that I worked with their goal on a week to week basis was to get lunch paid for five days of the week. That was it. And you could see the vendors that were like, oh, this guy loves Chipotle. We take him once a month to a good steakhouse. We can pick up, you know, half or all of his business doing that. That was his, that was his worldview. But again, you have to kind of think outside the box a little bit about what their true motivations are. Yeah. Well, great point. You know, I, I've been harping on the fact that with COVID, uh, those guys, their business model ended. They can't take anybody out to, to, to right. Chipotle anymore. They yep. can't buy them five. He's got to find another set of needs and those sellers have got to find another way to sell. And the only thing that's left, or one of the only thing that's left is the value you bring, what mm -hmm. you are looking for. So that's just a, a reminder that whiskey and tickets, those days are over probably forever. And now you've got what used to be one of the ways to succeed is now the way to succeed because you know what, frankly, all of your customers are a lot more worried about their cash flow and showing them value right. was always the right thing to do. Now it's the only thing to do. Yeah. And especially in the construction industry, you know, let's talk about it. it's a relationship business. We like doing the belly to belly sale and it's really forced people to think differently, not only about the conversations we have about value, but it's also when I can introduce those. And I used to have a meeting and we used to have small chit chat for 20 minutes and then we transition into here. Folks are realizing, well, there's been an overload of Zoom. Zoom can save a ton of time. And when we check in and I just look at you and say, okay, let's do this. All of a sudden, you know, I don't have the pictures on the wall that I can, I'm trying to build rapport, but it forces us to say as soon as possible, where do you want to be in 12 months or 24 or 36 months? Do I understand what that, that future looks like for you and where you're trying to go? And how do I have a conversation and ask questions that lead us to you? You can't imagine beginning that journey without me on board somehow. Yeah, I think um, COVID has stripped a lot of the ornamentation away. We have yeah. to really concentrate on what's real, what's important. Yeah. And for better or for worse, it, it's made it harder, but it's made the right thing easier because it's the only thing left. Yeah. Um, it's uncomfortable for some people, but uh, there it is. You have to understand your customer's business. And when you were talking before um, about 
being that purchasing person and allowing the vendor and the, the contractor to come in and, and give you some math. Uh, somebody else told me that our customers doesn't, they don't always want to be right. That's why they need us. And those two people coming in in partnership with you um, showed that they understood your business. They understood not only their business, but how it affects your business. And as the seller, you're the only one who can be expert on your own business and the customer's business. The customer doesn't have the time or the inclination to be an expert on the businesses of every one of his vendors. As the seller, you have to take ownership of that expertise. Oh, absolutely. And I think what I realized, and I wrote about in the book quite a bit, was just uh, this idea of process mapping of a supplier, of a vendor, of a partner coming in and say, hey, we spent some time really mapping out on a one page how you and I work together. And when we did this process with folks and we literally lay out, when I send this to you, you do this. And then we put out the schedule and this is how you get paid. We saw so many redundancies and there are so many little things where they said, we never want to bring it up because we love your business and you guys pay every two weeks and you're building a thousand homes. We never wanted to ask for this, but if you could do this one thing, one change, it would mean the world to us. And I would say, oh, that, yeah. I don't even know why we do it that way. That's just the way we've always done it. We can easily change that. And it meant the world to their business and vice versa. I found, hey, when you guys do this, it's really annoying and frustrating and it's, there's friction and it slows us down. And they're like, oh, that's really easy for us to change. And when you found there's all these small things that we do that cause big problems for you and vice versa, but going in and kind of breaking down that process map uh, or doing it ahead of time and bringing it in and saying, hey, just wanted to show this to you. Are there other th ways that we can work together better? it will immediately differentiate you from 90% of the other companies out there. I love that. Um, I had a guest, Rob Hartnett, who said, sell like you're already doing business together. Mm. And that dynamic of sitting down with each other's processes and mapping and saying, how can we make it really efficient to do business together is something that you think to do after you're in business together. Right. And you don't think of doing when you're walking in and when you're on the outside looking in. And if a new vendor came in and approached you that way, what would you think of them? Yeah. Well, and even fed folks, and I'll try to do this when I'm selling as well, is just asking a very simple, innocuous question of just curious, why do you guys do it that way? And then sometimes you'll see them look at each other and be like, oh man, we've talked about this there's no good reason and it's terrible. And we've talked about, we've never changed. <laughs> and I'll say, all right, what are the, what are the obstacles? You know, I'll go into my selling mode. Hey, what, what are the biggest obstacles caught, you know, holding that change back? What are the opportunities if we were to change this? All of a sudden you could see them as, this isn't even involved you, but this is a really good conversation and we should be doing this. And I'm like, if you can deliver that value when you are not partnering together, just imagine what would happen if we were to work together and spend more time and figuring out how we can ultimately, you know, collaborate more efficiently, that would be more enjoyable, uh, you know, work on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Say, that reminds me of a, a, a tangent. Sure. Somebody told me once, and I don't know, it might have been you, that people who sell what seems like a commodity, lumber, right, are the most creative at uncovering and selling value. People who sell highly differentiated enterprise software kind of stink at understanding value. Yay or nay, what do you think? I, 
<laughs> I certainly did not say that. Uh, part of a lot of what I spend my time with is, you know, on one hand, we'll have sellers who will say, you know, we do this and we do this and we bend over backwards and we do all these things for our customers. And then when we get in front of them, we'll say, you know, hey, you know, tell me where I need to be. If I can get last look, tell me where I got to be to come in to make sure I land this business. And what we spend a lot of time and actually you wrote about in your book too is, you know, deciding who you want to be. And if you do not want to be the Walmart in our cases, you don't want to be the Walmart of lumber and building material suppliers, then don't. You got to understand that we're not going to sell to everybody, but we need to articulate our value and find ways to make sure that folks who want to pay for that, that additional service, that then we demand it. And yeah. we say, oh, we do all these things and it is worth more. Yeah. A wise man once told me that if price was the only reason people bought, there would only be one vendor. Right. Yeah. And, and it wouldn't be you. <laughs> yeah. So, so now that you know that you can't be that vendor and succeed long-term, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. How are you going to sell instead? Yeah. And understanding your customer's business and, and finding ways that you can save them time, money, expense, make them look better. Those are those ways. Yeah. And we used to always, uh, there's a simple framework, uh, you know, that we call like the three C framework to help us and then help our clients think differently. It's what are we, how are we thinking about internally in the company? Uh, what's going on with their customers and then what's going on with their competitors? Uh, because when I was working for national home builder, we would often talk about, we, we were big. Uh, we had a lot of buying power. We had a lot of stuff going on, but our, one of our biggest risks was focusing so much internally that when someone came in from the outside and said, you know, something like, Hey, just curious, uh, there's a new trend in the market in terms of uh, exterior doors, uh, of your top five competitors, uh, four of them have already switched over the last 12 months to this new door. You guys have not just curious. Why do you think that is? And sometimes my answer was like, what? <laughs> like we know intuitively we're on the corner of Maine and Maine. They're on the corner of Maine and Maine. We're very similar products, same school district. And yet I, we don't have time to focus on the competition. And when someone brought this to our attention, all of a sudden it was, hmm, I'd say, do you know the answer? He's like, I got a good reason because we're selling to them. Do you want to know why? I'm like, yes, I do. You know, so bringing in this and in, in kind of this idea of challenging them a little bit, but thinking in terms of, do I know enough about my customers or my future customers customer? And have I, have I been thoughtful about researching and what am I bringing to the table that they might not know? Because it's so easy for big companies, even small companies to get so focused internally that we forget that all the value is really outside. Yeah. I, I think getting comfortable with the fact that your customers rely on you if you spend the time to educate yourself and be smart for them. Right. Yeah. 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 One of the, the mantras that I've had over and over both to myself and my team throughout COVID, but we're using God is that thoughtfulness is a really important form of differentiation. And we know what that feels like personally when someone's really thoughtful, right? And they send us a nice gift or they remember our anniversary. Like we know what that is. And we also know in our professional lives what it's like when people are not thoughtful. They're thoughtless. We, we experience that every day. But if you really spend time, say, I'm going to shut the phone off, Mark, you and I, we're going to think about this prospect for one hour. Let's just, let's just think about their company, their customers, their competitors. 
how can we prove that we are being thoughtful? You know, I think there's a lot of power in that. I'm writing that down. Uh, hey. I absolutely love that. <laughs> thoughtfulness and spending some time, not thoughtful, not just thoughtfulness in sending them the, you know, cards and, and remembering, yeah. remembering personal stuff, but being considerate of their business and their world and trying yeah. to figure out how you can plug in and make them more successful in their world. Uh, that kind of thoughtfulness is, exactly. that's the coin of the realm. Yeah, because things are always changing and, and we've heard this, I know you've heard it a thousand times. I've actually fallen in the trap of actually saying it like, hey, when things return to the new normal, you know what, guess what? Something else is gonna happen in 2021 and it's gonna result in some change and it's gonna force us to change behaviors or get left behind and people who can adapt to it, they're gonna be in a better position. So there's always gonna be something else. Now, we might've seen the more extreme version of it this past year, but something else is coming. So it's yeah. how can I, and you talked a lot about, you know, creating a process, a consistent process to drive value. And that comes from asking intelligent questions of being thoughtful and just thinking about, okay, this happened. How will this affect fill in the blank? You know? Yeah, no, I agree. I have a personal belief that there is not going to be a new normal. Um, right. Remember before, remember 2019 before, we always told ourselves the only constant is change. And then 2020 said, here, hold my beer. And the changes got bigger and more frequent. In 2021, they aren't going to go back to normal. The best case is that the pace of change will slow down to what it was, but it's yeah. still going to be there. But what is going to happen is the change is, is going to continue even as the echoes of a pandemic start dying down. So there is not going to be a new normal. It's going to be a, a rolling series of normals. And, yeah, and the sooner you get, wrap your head around that and figure out how am I going to help my customers create their best normal in each one of those successive changes, how can I remain responsive and proactive with my customers and co-create a new series of solutions every time we figure out what the next normal is? Um, those, those are the people who are going to win. Yeah. And I think, I think for guys like us who are, we write often, I will often, I will think things, I will see things, they'll start to take form. And until I, I actually write them down and then I'll look at them, I'm like, is, is this what I believe? And then I'll have to kind of tweak it and change it. I think one of the simplest ways uh, to navigate and to help our, our clients and our prospects now is sitting down and asking thoughtful questions. And then on a one page document say, hey, we talked about you know, some of the obstacles you're facing in 2021, uh, some of the opportunities you see and how you can build on some of your competitive advantages. We talked about that last time. I just put them real simple into, you know, bold headline with a few bullet points. And I'm not just send it back to you. I just want to say, is, is this accurate? Because I found by just doing that, they'll sit back and they'll look at it and I'm like, did I say that? I'm like, yeah, that's what we talked about. But then all of a sudden what you're doing is you're taking things that they might be thinking or in the process of thinking or realizing that they're not thinking nearly enough and sharing it back with them. That alone can demonstrate thoughtfulness and provide a ton of value that I think anyone listening to this can do immediately. Yeah, that's, I love that, Bradley. Thank you. So what have we uh, missed that you need to, that you'd like to get out before we break? You know, I think one thing uh, I would just like to say is this real shift, and you kind of alluded to it too, is kind of the new normal here is that 
and, and I think it's probably in a more extreme version in our lumber building materials and construction industry, but there's been this ongoing shift that has been accelerated over the past 12 months. And it's really this move from high touch experiences. Uh, you, you just mentioned it, Mark. I thought it was great. I meant to write it down. Uh, whiskey, whiskey and tickets, right? Yeah. That, that mindset, this is how we sell whiskey and tickets and this belly to belly, you know, let's get together. Let's spend a lot of time, this high touch experience that takes a lot of time over our day. There's been a shift that's been ongoing for a while to this low touch content, which is, I already know the questions you're asking. We're providing answers and audio and video and text, and you can check it at midnight or four in the morning, whenever it's available for you. We're being thoughtful and trying to answer those questions before you ask them. And while this shift has been going on for the last decade, what has happened over the last 12 months, I think has just poured gasoline on it and accelerated a hundred X. So how can we really think through what sort of low touch content easily available that's answering questions, providing value on demand, available through the internet or anything else, that's, this is only going to continue. And I think the folks that get out in front of it, and many of our listeners, they might be in industries that were doing this years ago or already consider themselves experts at it, but a lot of folks aren't. And I think specifically for salespeople, if we don't figure that out and have a process for it, you know what, survival uh, isn't mandatory. And so it's not going to be around for everybody. I love that. Low touch, high thoughtfulness. There you go. Yep. That's the way of the future. I love that. Uh, Bradley, thank you for a great conversation. We, I, we've got to have another one because we were, I felt like we were just getting started. I agree. Well, and I would say, hey, this, uh, I would tell folks, I've already gifted this to a handful of people. I think from what you did in the first uh, 30 pages, more than paid for itself, let alone the rest of what's in here. And um, again, I think value like strategy is one of these words that gets thrown around a lot. And until you sit with it, and I think your book's a great tool for that. Sit with it and marinate it and share it with other people. Uh, it takes a while for folks to really let it sink in and grasp. grasp. So uh, I just want to say thanks. Big fan. And um, again, keep doing what, what you've been doing. And back at you. I love what you're doing in your industry. And um, I hope we have a chance to, to uh, collaborate some more. Let me know. I'm in. Great. Bradley, thank you so much. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast. Uh, remember that value only exists in your customer's mind, which means your success is all in your customer's head. Thanks and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customer's outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues because you'll be singing those old don't know value blue. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.